0: In uh, August of 1973, a man named Jan Olsen from Stockholm, Sweden, had just gotten out on parole. He had been in prison, and he decided it was time to rob a bank. He robs a bank, and things go sideways. The police show up, and when the police show up, he decides to take hostages. He takes hostages, and he has these hostages for some six days. As he has them, he's making all kinds of demands. He even puts one of the hostages on the phone to the prime minister of Sweden, to which that hostage says, you're playing with our lives. You're playing with our lives. We need to be saved and rescued. And during the course of all of that captivity, those hostages were threatened. He put nooses around their neck. He fired guns off into the air to scare them. Silly, right? When the police arrived, they were no longer against their captor. They were now hostile to the police. It's called Stockholm Syndrome, where you begin to become sympathetic to the person that's taking you hostage. It got its name from that because of that that incident in Stockholm, Sweden. Matter of fact, one of the ladies that was in captivity with that, that hostage taker got engaged to the man later. So fell in love became so sympathetic that she wanted to spend the rest of her life with him One of them later said this it's some kind of situation You get into when all of your values all of your morals You change they change in some way she says it's some kind of crazy situation When I'm sitting here and I'm looking at somebody that I know is not for me, that I know wants to harm me, that I know is using me, that I know is wanting to to bring pain to my life, and now all of a sudden I'm somehow sympathetic to them. I love them. I like them. I want what's best for them. And the people who are supposed to save me, now I'm against them. It's crazy, isn't it? Stockholm syndrome. I wonder if there are ways that we have a spiritual Stockholm syndrome where we look at the world and this world that is against us, that wants to chew us up and spit us out, this world that we are clearly supposed to stand in opposition to and not to love, that this world that brings pain and sorrow and hurt. I wonder if there are times that we become sympathetic toward it even to the point where we become hostile to the one that's tried to save us. Let me read you just a few verses about the world, what, what Scripture tells us about the world here. Mark eight 36. I'll put them up on the screen for you, just a few of them. Jesus says, For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Clearly there's something going on here. There's this dichotomy between the world and our soul. What about this one in John chapter 16, some more words of Jesus? He says this in verse 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Why? Because you will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I've conquered the world. This world was against Jesus and he conquered it. And in this world, there'll be suffering. Then to be a little bit more pointed. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, says this in chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age or this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is good and pleasing in the perfect will of God. You don't want to conform to the world. You want to be transformed by God. Clearly, these are at odds. And then probably the most pointed statement, a passage I read to you a couple of weeks ago. I'll read the entire thing, 1 John 2. Verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You can't love both of them, he says. And then he says, for everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of one's lifestyle is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever Clearly, there's an opposition here. There's this world and there's God's will. There's this love for the Father or this love for the world. And I wonder if somehow we get so into this world and we get so captivated by this world that brings suffering and pain and hurt. Maybe all of a sudden we become sympathetic to it. And then I'm reminded of passages like this. Philippians three twenty. That says, our citizen citizenship is in heaven, for which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like this isn't even our home, the text says. Or, or what about this one in First Peter chapter two? Dear friends, I urge you as strangers. Temporary residence to abstain from fleshly desires that wage war against you. Consider yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, so that any case where they speak evil against you, as those who do what is evil, they will by they will by observing your good works glorify God on the day of his visitation. Like we're just strangers, we're just passing through. Whereas Hebrews 12 14 says. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. All along, we've uh, made our way through the story of Joseph, and we said that character is formed by overcoming obstacles in our lives. And I think one of the biggest obstacles we face is the world. Culture. It's one of the biggest obstacles. It's, it's how do we live in the world as Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, but not be of the world. And I think it's a battle every one of us face. We face it the minute we we wake up in the morning. When we look at those gadgets, when when we go to work and we get in a workroom, when we get in a locker room at school, when we, when we ride a bus home, when we go off to college, we are faced with this dilemma that this world is in front of us. And sometimes it looks really, really good, even though it is out to destroy us. Big obstacle. And today I, I think Joseph's going to deal with it. Maybe harder than any of us do. And I want to see how he overcomes it. You've got your Bibles. Turn with me to Genesis 41. And let's see how Joseph makes his way to be in this world but not of the world. So you're turning there. There's several things he's overcome. He's overcome compromise. Remember, his dad was probably one of the most passive people in Scripture wouldn't intervene when his brothers hated him. He, he never really would step up. He just kind of let things happen. And as a result, because of the jealousy of Joseph's brother, Joseph was sold into slavery. The next thing Joseph had to overcome was temptation. While he was in slavery, Potiphar's wife, slave owner's wife, decided she wanted to make sex, sexual advances toward him. And, but man, Joseph just stands tall and he overcomes the obstacle of temptation. He's then lied about and framed and thrown in prison. And then Pastor John talked about overcoming the obstacle of suffering when things don't go well. And then last week we noticed after several years in prison, he's going to be called up to Pharaoh. And he's going to get this amazing opportunity for success. And even success is an obstacle. And Joseph overcomes it well. He interprets these dreams for Pharaoh. And not only interprets them, but gives him a plan on how to endure it. Remember? There were going to be seven really good years, seven years where all of the, the grain was going to come in and, and there was going to be no famine. It was going to be absolutely hand over fist, the ability to feed themselves. And then there were going to be seven bad years, so bad that people would forget the abundance they had. And Joseph comes up with a plan to take 20% during the good years, to set it back. And this is the words of Pharaoh To Joseph after he gives that plan Genesis 41 verse 39 so Pharaoh said to Joseph since God has made all this known to you there is no one as intelligent as wise as you are you will be over my house and all my people will obey your commands only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you Pharaoh looks at him and says, your plan is great. You interpreted the dreams well, and this is the deal. I'm going to promote you. No longer are you going to be in prison, but you're going to serve me, and you're not just going to serve me somewhere. You are going to be number two in command. I don't know if that's vice Pharaoh. I don't know if that's chief of staff. I don't know what that is, but clearly he has gone to the top, right? He says, verse 41, Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He clothed him with fine linen garments and placed a gold chain around his neck. We already know that Joseph had to shave and put on some Egyptian garb in order to stand before Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's looking at him now and said, well, if you're going to be over the people of Egypt, you had better look like an Egyptian. And so what we're going to do is I'm going to give you my signet ring. The signet ring is like the badge for a police officer, the gavel for a judge, the stamp for a notary. When he needed to make a decision, he just takes that ring, melts the wax, and just rolls that ring in. And everybody knows Pharaoh endorsed this. This is big authority he's been given. He not only gives him clothes, but he gives him fine linen. These are the linen of royalty, He's now in Pharaoh's house. He will be separated from others. Does that sound familiar to Genesis 37 when he was given a coat the first time to separate him from others? And not only that, he's got this gold necklace around him. Let's keep on. How else does he begin to look like an Egyptian? Verse 42, he had Joseph ride in his second chariot And the servants called out before him "Abrek," which means to kneel. He gives him a ride of royalty. He puts him in this chariot, and then the people would cry out and say, kneel, behold. And so now as Joseph rides through, he looks like an Egyptian. He's riding like an Egyptian. He's got the authority of an Egyptian. He's over Egyptians, and Egyptians are bowing to him. Then he goes on. Pharaoh said to Joseph in verse 44, I am Pharaoh, but no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land without your permission. That's pretty big, isn't it? Everything's going to flow through you. Verse 45, Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zaphonath-Paneah and gave him a wife, Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. And Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt to make this Egyptianization of Joseph complete. I'm going to change your name. Forget Joseph. Forget that Hebrew name. I'm going to give you an Egyptian name. We don't know what it means. We have no idea. But it is clearly not Hebrew anymore, right? And not only that, I'm going to give you a wife. And I'm not just going to give you any wife. I'm going to give you a wife so that your father-in-law is going to be a pagan priest. the r a in the last two letters of her name is the ra for the sun god the sun god was worshiped at own and so as a result this is one of the biggest egyptian gods there is and he is putting joseph right in the middle of it right in the middle of egyptian worship Egyptian name, Egyptian wife, Egyptian worship, Egyptian family. Can you see it? Let me ask you, is he in the world? Every bit of it. Matter of fact, we see this in Scripture a ton of times. There are plenty of times where names have been changed, few of them for the worst. If I were to tell you who are the three friends of Daniel, you would say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but that's not their Hebrew name. That's their Babylonian name. That name changed, and we only remember them by their Babylonian name, don't they? Look at it in Daniel chapter 7. I'll put it up here for you. As Daniel and Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael were taken into captivity, Babylon says, we're going to make it Babylonian. We're going to give you a Babylonian diet. We're going to give you a Babylonian diet. Education, we're going to give you Babylonian names. Verse 7, it says the chief official gave them other names. He gave them the name of Belshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. We, we read in Esther another story of captivity where Esther is going to be put in one of the, the, uh, the harems of, of the king. And she's going to make her way to be the queen, if you will. And as a result, she's going to do great things in this captivity. It happens multiple times in Scripture. The world is trying to to win you over. It's trying to make you more like them. The same thing is happening here to Joseph. Let's keep reading. See what else happens. Verse 44. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Then Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. Remember, he was 17 when he was sold into slavery. He's 30 now. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvests. Joseph gathered all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and put it in the cities. He put the food in every city from the fields around it. Verse 49, so Joseph stored up grain in such abundance like the sand of the sea that he stopped measuring measuring it because it was beyond measure. He's doing an Egyptian job, and he's doing it really well. Skip down to verse 53. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began. And as Joseph has said, there was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt there was food extreme hunger came to all the land of egypt and all the people cried out to pharaoh for food and pharaoh told all of egypt go to joseph and do whatever he tells you he has done his job so well that the other countries are coming and pharaoh was looking at him and said just go talk to him Verse 56, because the famine had spread across the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptian, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt, and every nation came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe in every land everybody's going to see him as an Egyptian. Everybody's going to see his authority. Everybody's going to bow their knee to him. Everybody's going to have to come to Joseph to get something. And if you're just reading it, my question for you is, is he in the world? Yes. Is he of the world? If you're reading it, it looks like he's bought it hook, line, and sinker, hasn't it? I want to show you something else, though. I think Moses, the author of this book, is gonna to go to great lengths in this passage to show you he is not home. He's not home. Let me show it to you first. Go back over there to when when he gets exalted. Back over there in those first few verses where it says verse, verse 40. You will be over my house. And all my people will obey your commands. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And then when it sits back down there and he says in verse 44, I am Pharaoh, but no one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt without your permission. Does that sound familiar if you've been following along? I think it sounds very familiar. Matter of fact, look back over at it in chapter 39. 39. When Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's house, see if these words sound familiar. Verse 4. Joseph found favor in his master's sight and became his personal attendant. Potiphar also put him in charge of his household and placed all that he owned under his authority. And then it goes on and it says... He left all that he owned under Joseph's authority. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. This is not the first time everything's been handed to Joseph. Joseph was a slave, and he was over all of Potiphar's house. The only thing Potiphar didn't care about was food. Or or what about when he's in prison? Look down there in verse 21 of chapter 39. He says, "But." The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and he granted him favor in the prison in the eyes of the prison warden and the warden put all the prisoners who were in the prison under Joseph's authority and he was responsible for everything that was done there and the warden didn't bother with anything under Joseph's authority does that sound familiar What happens is, is we read chapter 41 and all of a sudden we forget that Joseph is still a slave. Was he a slave in chapter 39, even though all of Potiphar's house was under him? Yes. Was he still a slave and a prisoner when everything was put under his hand and control in prison? Yes. Is he a slave still? even though the man he's a slave to is the most powerful person in the known world? Yes. I think Moses is trying to show you he's not free. He can't leave. He can't look at Pharaoh and say, you know what? I'm going to resign. He can't do that. He is still under the control of Pharaoh. Matter of fact, I think Moses does something else here. Let me show you something else that he does. Back in chapter 39 again. Remember when Potiphar's wife gets rejected by Pharaoh? She says this in verse 14. She called all the household servants. Look, she said to them, my husband brought a Hebrew man to make a fool of us. And then when her husband gets home in verse 17, she does it again. The Hebrew slave you brought to us came to make a fool of me. And then remember last week when the cupbearer couldn't remember Joseph's name? What does he say in chapter 41, verse 12? A young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards. If If you'll just follow me just for a second. I told you who wrote this book for a reason. His name is Moses. And Moses is going to come on the scene some 500 years later. And if you'll remember how Moses enters the scene, you probably know Moses by the Ten Commandments, and he splits the Red Sea, but I want you to remember something. Moses was one of those Hebrew slave babies that Pharaoh wanted to kill. Do you remember that? There were so many Hebrews in the land, he said, they'll overtake us, so I'm gonna kill every Hebrew boy. But not Moses' mom. She puts him in a basket and slides him down the river. You remember the story? And remember who picks him up? Pharaoh's household. And he's raised in Pharaoh's household. Would anybody understand what it's like to be a Hebrew slave in Pharaoh's household better than Moses? Would anybody? Would anybody understand what it's like to be there and to live in it? And if you just want some extra homework, some fun reading, go read the first two chapters of Exodus and see how many times Hebrew slave is mentioned. Hebrew slave, Hebrew slave, Hebrew. I think Moses is making it clear to us. Just as if he knew he wasn't home, he's wanting you to know Joseph isn't home. Joseph isn't home. This is not his spot. I think Moses records the the changing of the name and the giving of this foreign wife and all this stuff because he's wanting it to make clear Joseph is not an Egyptian. He is there, but he's not of it. And you say, that's great, Russell, fantastic. But Joseph hasn't done anything to change my mind. Joseph hasn't showed that he's not of the world. It looks like he's taking it all and running with it and enjoying the people, bowing down and getting after all of this success. But I skipped a couple of verses and I wanna show them to you because I think Joseph does something here that shows his heart just a tad. Let's jump back up there to chapter 41, verse 50. Now my question is, does Joseph have Stockholm Syndrome? Is he going to start sympathizing with Egypt? Is he going to start caring for Egypt? Does he start looking at Egypt with sympathetic eyes? Back up there in verse 50. Two sons were born to Joseph before the years of famine arrived probably means Joseph is now 37 years old. Remember, he was 30 when he started serving Pharaoh. There were going to be seven years of abundance, and then there would be seven years of famine. That means he's 37. That also means he has now been in Egypt longer than he lived in Hebron with his father, because he was 17 when he left that place. My wife and I are at that point when we start celebrating our anniversaries, where we're now thinking, you know what? We've now been together longer than we knew each other apart, right? You, you come to those anniversaries, they're pretty cool, aren't they? I think that's the anniversary we got here. He's he's longer in Egypt. And what does he do? Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, or at On, bore them, bore them to him, some sons. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. And the second son he named Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. These are Hebrew names. These are not Egyptian names. These are Hebrew names. Somehow, after 20 years of being away from dad the patriarchs and the land, he still has the wherewithal to name his child, Manasseh and Ephraim, Hebrew names. And not only are they Hebrew, I want you to see them. The Lord has made me fruitful in the land that has been so good to me. Is that what it is? The Lord has made me fruitful in this beautiful country of Egypt. Egypt. The Lord has made me fruitful in this place where I have been able to show my spiritual gifts at their greatest. Is that what it says? Because everything I just read to you didn't sound like a bit of affliction, did it? Let me be clear. In the world and not of the world, this is what we have to understand. Your point of location does not determine your identification. Your point of location, geographically, does not determine your identification. He knows he's not Egyptian. He knows Egypt isn't good. In other words, he's naming his kid this. No matter how good it gets, it's still just Egypt. No matter how good this world gets, it's still just the world. It's still just the world. No matter how good it gets. And listen, I've had some good times. Have you had some good times? I've had some good times. I had a good time last night. I went to a father-daughter dance, and, and I, I got on the dance floor and danced badly and ate good food and, and, and took pictures with my daughter, and it was great. It was great. It's still the world. I've been out on the lake and had a great time. I've been to the beach. I've gotten to climb a mountain. I've whitewater rafted. I haven't done near half the stuff you've done. And it's good and you've got memories and you share them, but it's still the what? It's still the world. It's just still the world. And if you don't remember that, it's going to be Stockholm Syndrome for you because all of a sudden you're going to grow sympathetic toward it and you're going to think, it's it's kind to me and it loves me and it wants me. It does not. It wants to ruin your life. It wants to take you captive. It wants to bring suffering and harm to you. And when God gives us the common grace to enjoy his creation and his gifts, just remember if you think this is good (laughs) wait till you're home so some of us need to take a look at our stuff and it's great but you need to say I need to Ephraim this I I need to remember God you made me fruitful but this is the land of my affliction then There's the other end of it. Remember Manasseh. The Lord has made me forget the hardships in my father's house. Again, your point of location is not determining your identification. And some of you may be thinking, well, Russell, that's great for you. You've got just such a great life, but man, my life is hard. And I'm in the throes of it right now and I'm in pain, and my family is this, and my doctor's visits look like this, and and, and I got visitation tomorrow, and I got this. Th- I mean, you, You're looking at a long list of pain, and you need to remember in the same way. And Joseph says, it may be good, but it's still Egypt. It may be hard, but there's something to look forward to. It may be hard this is not the end. This is not the end, is it? And so whether you're on the good end of it or you're in the hard part of it, it doesn't have to be your identification. You don't have to find your identity in what your bank account has or what plot of land you built your house on or what your kids do in sports or or what your job is or what your promotion should be. It doesn't have to be that. Your identity is in Christ Jesus if you put your faith and trust in him. And if life is hard, you don't have to be known as bitter and hard and envious and jealous and hateful. It doesn't have to be you. Why? Because I know there's something better ahead. When he says, God has made me forget Hardship in my father's house. I don't think he's forgetting his dad or Benjamin or his brothers because he's going to recognize them in a few short verses. I think he's saying, I'm not going to let the hard times define me. I'm not going to let it do it. If you look at the way that all of those, both of those names start, the identification is in the first four words. God has made me. God has made me. And probably the greatest thing I could tell you today is is that God has made you, He loves you, He has a plan for you, and He wants your identity not to be found in this world, but He sent His Son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life, to die for you, to take your place. Three days later He rose again. And the greatest thing I could tell you is if you put your faith and trust in him, your identity is secure forever, right? Right? It's the greatest thing I could tell you. Not only does your point of location not determine your identification, but your point of location doesn't, shouldn't be the source of your information. It shouldn't be the source of where you get your information from, and unfortunately, for many of us, we live in this world, and we get our information from this world. We let it def- we let it define us. We let it inform us. We get we we, we let it explain things to us. Things to us. We, we, we let it just completely cloud the the truth, and we just get our information from it. And if Joseph were to have done that, he would have just sat back and said, I must be Egyptian. I just must be bitter. I just must be. But he doesn't get his information from there. I was, um, I was really hard on Jacob week one. I've been hard on him the whole time. I've just kind of called him this passive, wimpy man, right? And he has been. But as I read this, some made me think he must have done something right. He must have done something right? I don't know if it's on accident. I don't know, but all I know is, surely somewhere before this 17-year-old boy was captured and thrown into slavery, Jacob must have said. Some things about God, right? He must have. He must have talked about Isaac. He must have talked about Abraham. He must have told the stories. This is, this is my take. This is Russell's translation. Are you ready? It's just me. Remember Jacob and Esau? They hated each other because Jacob lied to his brother. And they were split in different ways. And finally, Jacob and Esau were going to meet again. And when they were going to meet, Jacob was scared because he knew his brother hated him. And so he takes half his family and starts sending them one way and half his family and starts sending them another. Can you imagine being Joseph at eight, nine, ten years old and wondering why half my brothers are going this way and half of us are going this way? The reason was is because if Esau had to chase, he could only chase one and couldn't kill them all. And and he watches his dad, Jacob, send this big offering to his brother Esau. And then one night, dad's gone. And when his dad comes back, he's got a limp. You see, the night before he were to meet Esau, Jacob wrestles with God. And God pops that hip, and he's going to walk with a limp forever. And I just wonder what it was like when Jacob walks home and eight-year-old Joseph, because eight-year-olds will see it, says, what happened to your leg, dad? And then when they start, people start calling him Israel instead of Jacob. And they say, why? Why do they call you Israel, dad? He says, because that's what God named me. That's just that's my translation. Whatever happened, it stuck. And twenty years later, Joseph is finding his identity in that God, not the Egyptian one. He's finding his identity in. The God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and not the world. So I guess my question for you is this. Do you have spiritual Stockholm syndrome? Is the world just so good to you? Starting to get sympathetic to it? Starting to love it? Even to the point of resisting God so that you can have more of the world? Oh, Lord, I, uh, I confess it is so easy to be lured into this world. The enemy paints it so well. He's a wolf dressed in sheep's clothing. And Lord, I pray that as we think about our identification, I pray that as we think about our successes and the goodness that has happened in this world or the hardships and the trials, that, Lord, we wouldn't let those things define us. Lord, I pray that we would reach down deep and we would remember your goodness and your love. Remember that you're rescuing us from this. This isn't home. And so, Lord, while we're here, I pray that we would be faithful to seek you and to point others to you and to show others what's really good, and that's your son, Jesus Christ. So just, just right where you're at, just maybe before we sing this song, would you just ask yourself, Lord, i my love in the world. Help us to overcome that. And maybe as we come and take these elements, you would say, Lord, this is what I should love, Jesus. This is what is really good, His death, burial, and resurrection. And then here in a moment, we're going to sing, I will build my life on Christ. I pray that we could sing that in authenticity and truth. So let that be true of us today, Lord.